This week on Crime World... There was a Republican police from 1920. I mean, the IRA was effectively trying to run an underground government. And actually, there was a crime wave. 1919-1920, there's a wave of bank robberies, post office robberies, robberies of individuals, robberies of pubs in Dublin and in rural areas as well. So the IRA tried to actually clamp down on that. They, on occasion, solving bank robberies and giving the money back to the banks. Now, I'm Nicola Talent, and you can listen to my podcast, Crime World, wherever you get your podcasts. Remember, you can stay up to date on the latest news with the Irish Independent WhatsApp channel. If you like the Indo Daily, you can follow us on Apple, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Before we start, a word of warning. This podcast contains graphic accounts of murder. This is the story of a very average Irishman. He was tall, lean, fit, go-ahead sort of a guy and certainly would have been seen from an outside point of view as a good catch. A path paved out for him in Ireland's elite swimming circle. Frank McCann appeared to have it all. Esther thought she had found the perfect man, the perfect father to the children that she wanted and she thought he was mad about her and so did we. But this son, brother, husband, foster father and swimming coach was hiding a very dirty secret. One that would shock a nation when he did the unthinkable to hide it. We now know that uh, Frank McCann himself took these uh, heinous abuses to an entirely new level simply to keep them from knowing that he had, I believe, uh, molested and impregnated a 17-year-old swimmer with special needs. This is the story of a man who committed double murder and has for almost 30 years lived his life behind bars, leaving the loved ones of those he killed in a permanent state of loss. But also fear that this woman and baby killer might soon walk the streets of Ireland a free man. You know, it really is a life sentence for all of us to live in fear for the rest of our lives or for the rest of his life anyways. This is the story of Frank McCann. In part one of this podcast series, we heard about Esther, Jessica and Frank McCann and how life was in the run-up to that horrific house fire on their Dublin home in 1992. Today, we will hear about another important, dominant and secretive world that Frank McCann also belonged to. An elite circle of national swimming coaches who have since been exposed for sexually abusing young children in their care. In 1981, George Gibney got the top job in Irish swimming. When allegations that Gibney was a paedophile came to the attention of Gardaí in 1992, he was forced to step aside. But it was his replacement, Derry O'Rourke, who was convicted of multiple cases of child sexual abuse and in 1998 sentenced to 12 years. Both were frequent visitors at Frank McCann's house. Here's Conor Fian, Irish independent reporter, to tell us more. Gibney uh, O'Rourke, they were accused of serious misconduct with, uh, with, with young girls. And while Frank 
was the uh, president of the Irish Amateur Swimming Association um, at, at the time uh, that that this incident happened in the house in, in Butterfield. Um, you know, some a student did approach him about uh, abuse and um, and relayed the the stories of abuse to McCann, trusting that that he would be able to do something about it. But Frank seemed to be more concerned about his own image and the image of swimming at the time, rather than dealing with the uh, the abuse claims. And and said at the time, you know, I hope this doesn't break on my watch while he was president. And I'm joined now by Irv Muchnick, an investigative journalist and author who is based in California. Irv, you know a thing or two about the Irish swimming scene back in the day. Can you talk to me about what what you yourself have researched and written about? Yes, of course. What people in Ireland first need to understand is that I started investigating Uh, sexual abuse by coaches in youth sports programs, most especially swimming, starting around 2012. And my focus was on USA Swimming and uh, American swimming programs. Uh, I came across the work of uh, Justine McCarthy, read her excellent book, uh, Deep Deception, Ireland's Swimming Scandals, talked to her. And along about uh, 2015, I decided to do a deep dive into the George Gibney story. And the Gibney story is so dramatic and so grotesque and it's transcontinental and has, you know, so many aspects of it that I decided to uh, to make that a focus of my work. Because certainly um, at the time, uh, Frank McCann was in this very high-powered position in Irish swimming, heading up the, the Leinster branch, Irv. He would be rubbing shoulders with the likes of, of Derry O'Rourke and George Gibney. And we know that um, some sexual abuse allegations were flagged. And indeed, he cared more about his own position of power than exposing the truth and perhaps bringing some kind of comfort and at long last discovery to the the victims involved. Uh, That's right. I credit a 2016 timeline at Broadsheet for really putting it all in one place for someone like me who was coming to the story late and as an outsider. And, And what we do know is that is at the time a Gibney allegations were being brought to the the then Irish Amateur Swimming Association by uh, Coach uh, uh, Carol Walsh, who had information about George Gibney's uh, abuse of Chalky White, who's like the core accuser of this, or the root accuser in this in this entire narrative. Uh, Walsh uh, brought her information to Frank McCann, who was in a leadership uh, position with the, I, I believe he was president of the. Leinster branch of the IASA at that time, and uh, and McCann said to uh, Carol Walsh that uh, he ho- I think this is a direct quote he hoped to fuck uh, the Gibney story wouldn't break while he was president, and of course uh, uh, we now know uh, that uh, Frank McCann himself uh, 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 took these uh, heinous abuses to an entirely new level in uh, uh, 
in uh, actually murdering his uh, his wife and their child by burning down their house in Dublin, uh, simply to uh, keep them from knowing that uh, uh, he had, uh, I believe, uh, molested and impregnated a 17-year-old swimmer with special needs. So it's a you know it's a horrible web, and uh, although I come to it from the Gibney angle. Certainly, the Frank McCann uh, angle speaks for itself in its heinousness. Here's Esther Leonard, Esther McCann's niece. You know, you'd think like having an uncle as a swimming teacher, you were going to maybe have like an easier time or, you know, have a nice time. But he was, it was just all about the rules and kind of, you know, the technique and keep your head in the water. And it was not, it wasn't fun, you know, it wasn't like, a, you know, my other friends would be going off doing swimming lessons and have a great crack, you know. But Frank was just, I don't know what he was doing teaching kids. It wasn't right. Like he wasn't engaging or or. I've worked in schools since and I've seen, you know, what a teacher kind of should be. And, you know, he had none of that. Esther was not aware of the sex abuse scandals that were about to unravel around George Gibney and Derry O'Rourke, whom she would have welcomed into her home on occasion. Here's Marion Leonard, Esther McCann's older sister. They used to have meetings in the breakfast room in the house in Butterfield. And if I was down with Esther and Jessica and you know, if we went into the kitchen or if I went into the kitchen to make a cup of coffee, which you would freely do, wouldn't think about asking, you know, just go make a cup of coffee. We were never actually addressed or spoken to by either of them. Nor did we make coffee for them, which was quite unusual. You know, that normally if you're making a cup of tea for somebody, you'd always offer. We didn't do that. It was just silence. When you walked through the breakfast room into the kitchen, the conversation stopped until you went back out the door again. And like that's what we even say, going in for Jessica's bottle with Jessica in your arms. Nobody admired the child, which is a major insult when you have such a beautiful child on your arm. Um, but she wouldn't be admired by them or even looked at. Yeah. So they weren't there as friends of Esther's or nor did they want to get to know Esther's family or Jessica indeed. The adoption process was supposed to be a happy one. Confirmation by law that Frank and Esther were indeed Jessica's new and loving parents. But Esther was completely oblivious to the dangers. What she didn't realise is that her hopes of adoption could never happen. Because if it did, it would reveal her husband's dirty and illegal little secret. He had a young girl, was pregnant with his child, and that child was born they got married in May and the child was born in August, that little boy. And I think Frank was probably advised by some of his people within the Swimming Association that you're better off to be a married man among these kids that we're with. And I think he followed that advice and married Esther. Because after the wedding, shortly enough after the wedding, now not that summer, but very quickly after that, he cooled off. He really didn't bother that much coming up to our house or seeing the kids or turning up to family events. But he didn't come. Right. The baby was born in August. So a few months after they were married, his child was born. 
and nobody knew anything of no, this. We didn't know anything. How much it was known within the swimming association, I have no idea. But we didn't know anything. He, th- th- that girl's family, um, contacted Father Michael Cleary, who came between them, mediated between that family and Frank McCann to ensure that Frank McCann paid over money for the child's medical expenses, the mother's medical expenses. But Michael Cleary used leverage by telling Frank McCann that he would tell his young wife what had happened if he didn't pay up. I heard that from Michael Cleary. I phoned him. Okay. Um, his advice to me was to read his book that he'd brought out. But that, that was the only piece of information that I got from him. And he knew my sister was a nun. He would have met my sister during different um, religious things, ceremonies or not ceremonies, but probably different meetings. And he did not tell any of the family, any of Esther's family, what was going on. That would have been a major warning. And this was a young woman who was who she became would pregnant. have been probably sixteen when she became pregnant, and she was special needs, and. I think she was 17 by the time she had the baby. So, and but she would also have been a student, a swimming student. So there's there's a different moral grounds. He would, she would have been in the care of her coaches, and Frank McCann was one of the coaches. Has her family ever spoken to you? Not really? to me. They spoke to the guards and to the adoption board. Right. But not. No, I haven't ever spoken to them. And uh, is Frank's child still with that young lady? No, he was adopted. Father Michael Cleary arranged the adoption. Okay. So we don't know. I don't. I don't know who knows where mm-hmm. that 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 child is. But no, I would have no knowledge of where he could be. I just really hope he doesn't know who his father is. It would be better. He didn't go yeah. looking for his father, wouldn't it? Here's Connor Fian. This baby was born just three months after Frank and Esther's wedding and had been adopted out with the help of celebrity cleric at the time, Father Michael Cleary. So this wasn't known until the adoption process began. And the mother of the young teenager who bore that child got wind that Frank and Esther were going to be adopting Jessica and she got in touch with the adoption authorities to to voice her concern really and uh, it's my understanding that she actually made a complaint to the adoption authorities before the adoption application was even made so nobody really knew what was going on but the adoption application did come in eventually and when the complaint was married up with the uh, the adoption application, uh, alarm bells rang. It emerged then that uh, Frank denied having had this child with the, the, the swimming student um, and it was deemed that he was inappropriate, uh, he, was an in, he would be an inappropriate candidate to adopt a child um, on, on moral grounds. But Esther never even got to learn the details of this secret child, did she? No, she didn't. And this is where Frank starts to panic because Frank at this stage knows that 
there is uh, an appointment coming up with the, uh, the adoption authorities on September the 7th, 1992. And he knows that when he goes to that meeting with Esther, that Esther is going to be told about the fact that Frank has had this baby with a 17-year-old swimming student. And Frank knows that his standing in society, his standing in the community, everything he had worked for in the swimming association is all going to come tumbling down around him. And for whatever reason, Frank decided that the only way out of this was to make sure that Esther never found out about the news. It seems drastic. It seems incredible that somebody would go to the lengths that Frank McCann did in order to try and hide a secret, to burn down your own home with your wife and your foster daughter in it as a means to cover up a secret. It just seems like lunacy. Here's Stephen O'Brien, political analyst who worked for the Irish Independent back in 1992 and covered Frank's trials for the paper. Jessica had just started taking her steps, her first, not her first steps, but her first, she had stopped holding on to the wall. So she had started to walk entirely independently to her mother's great joy. And she was walking around the house uh, chanting daddy and mommy and uh, some from phrase about uh, Mammy's baby. She, I think she was referring to herself as Mammy's baby. So this beautiful little fragment of that life was discovered uh, in Esther's handwriting after the fire, and it was thought to be, you know, no more than a few days old. Uh, but their lives were cruelly crushed by Frank McCann in a uh, ghoulish effort to cover up his own uh, terrible behaviour. And my thanks to everyone who contributed on today's episode. Tomorrow, we'll hear about two trials and some very shocking revelations. Frank decided he wanted to end the trial. McCann wasn't in court when his trial resumed today. He's in hospital recovering from burns. So downstairs in a holding cell, he used a deodorant and a lighter and Frank McCann went up in flames. I'm Siobhan McGuire and today's episode was produced and researched by myself and Tabitha Monaghan with assistance from Connor Fian. Recorded by Gavin Hennessy with sound by John Smith. Archive clips from RTE and independent.ie. If you like the Indo Daily, don't forget to like, follow or leave us a review.